I think from a human nature standpoint, evildoers will try to find the easiest way possible to do what they want to do. So they're going to look for an easy opening. And so rather than, you know, bury our heads in the sand and say, you know, we're not going to do anything. What we need to do is to send a signal to the threat actors that we're doing everything we can to protect ourselves. And it's a little bit like if you think about, you know, your house on, on a street, right? If you're the only one who doesn't have locks on the door on your street and a thief comes by, drives by at night, the reality is that it's not guaranteed, but the reality is that there's a likelihood that the thief will try your house first. Welcome to the Maritime Risk Podcast brought to you by Shoreline Limited, the provider of innovative marine insurance solutions for the shipping industry. Our purpose is to explore the evolving risks within the maritime industry, including environmental, geopolitical, socioeconomic, and security threats such as cyber attacks, war, and terrorism, as well as the more traditional accidents, navigational and operational incidents, and other causes of business disruption. We'll speak with experts to help you prepare for the unexpected and navigate the complex world of the ever-evolving maritime risk environment. Uh, Good morning and welcome to this, the next in the series of Shoreline's Maritime Risks podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking to a next-gen cybersecurity business in the transportation sector, Riparian, based in based in Singapore and the UK and further afield also. We have great pleasure in speaking to Jesse Hamill-Stewart, Andrew Sally, and Dmitry Mikhailov, who will be introducing themselves more formally shortly. Two very interesting articles that were published by the Maritime Executive. The first considers how considered how hackers could use chat GPT to infiltrate vessels at sea. And the second looked at or asked the question, have hackers found financial incentive to target shipping? So we thought it very sort of prescient and timely to, to speak to Riparian today, given how much chat GPT, AI, machine learning seems to be in vogue and all sorts of theories abound about how they may act as a force multiplier to skew the ever-widening asymmetry of the attack surface and attack vectors by which cyber criminals can attack attack ships at sea. Start by saying, guys, that you're speaking to a self-confessed Luddite. So please keep that in mind when speaking to me and answering my questions. I went to sea at a time when we sent messages by Morse code. We wrote letters to our family and friends in the hope they might write back. And MS-DOS hadn't even been thought of. So, yes, things have moved on since I first put my first foot on a ship at sea. And many of my peers are running companies like this and shipping companies themselves. And so the, the, the sort of acceleration of, of this particular risk uh, at sea is, is quite hard for us to keep up with. So I'm very pleased we're speaking with you today. So with that all said and done, I'd like to give you the opportunity to, first of all, introduce yourselves and your company before we dive into the discussion that we're going to have this morning. Thank you very much, Tom, for the introduction. 
So my name is Andrew Sale. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Reparion, and I'm joined today by Dmitry Mikhailov, who is who is the the, the founder of, of Reparion and the creator of most of our cyber security technologies, as well as Jesse Hamill Stewart, who is our wonderful senior writer, who is based at, at the University of, in Bristol in the UK. Reparion is a is a next generation security business headquartered in Singapore. We are focused on protecting transportation assets from cybersecurity attacks across sea, land, and air. And we're also focused on protecting industrial facilities and critical infrastructure from, from drone attacks. So that is our focus. We have a footprint in Singapore, the UK, Dubai, and we also have a development resource in India. Thank you for that introduction, Andrew. So, I mean, let's dive into to the subject at hand here. And the first question we can consider is, so what are the main incentives and commercial goals of hackers targeting the maritime industry today? Well, you know, I, I think there, there's perhaps no industry that is as much at the intersection of trade, finance and geopolitics as the shipping industry is. And so that makes it a very target rich environment for hackers. In addition, you know, if you think about cyber attacks, you know, we've all experienced, for example, you know, our, our, uh, our bank's website going down for a couple of hours. But if, you ha- if you're able to hack a ship, you can have a much more profound and longer lasting impact by, for example, blocking a canal or blocking a waterway. And that could have huge implications either regionally or locally to, in, to the local economy for logistical supply chain trade and, and finance reasons, right? So, so that's, that's the first thing. The, the second thing is that if you think about who the hackers are, they're typically one of two types of, of actors, state actors who might be operating either directly or through their proxies or cyber criminals. And so state actors use maritime cyber attacks to achieve near-term geopolitical objectives. Cyber attacks on maritime and, and other physical assets are essentially part of what is known as the gray zone. The gray zone is that ever-expanding space between peace and war in which unconventional means are used to achieve objectives without actually triggering an armed conflict. When it comes to criminal organizations, I think what most people don't realize is that attacking a ship can be very good and easy money. And so those are the two, you know, the two primary reasons, the two primary incentives, geopolitical as well as financial. Yeah, thanks for that. I mean, I was thinking about this as I was riding my moped into work today. (laughs) And that sort of famous sci-fi quote from Star Trek back in the day from the Borg was, resistance is futile. And, And when I think about this subject, that sort of quote sort of resonates in my mind because it almost seems like resistance is futile because of the, the, the intersectionality of a number of different accelerators around this specific problem. So what I'm thinking about in particular is embedded networks and the way in which there's a proliferation of the Internet of Things in order to, to force forward the, the ever-increasing automation of function and, you know, ultimately towards unmanned ships uh, and the like. So you have companies who are fairly new startups who are looking to push out software and connect all sorts of devices to embedded networks, probably on board 
you know, moving assets like ships and the like with various ports open because obviously they're thinking about the product rather than the security of the product. And, and as I say, you have this sort of drive for, for automation all at the same time where you've got sort of weapons-grade cyber weaponry that used to be in the hands of nation-state actors 15 years, which is now in the bedrooms of teenagers playing around causing mischief, right? So so you really do have this sort of conflagration of, of different accelerants that make me feel as though, you know, resistance is futile. So how do we rebut that 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 thought? How do we sort of... How do we manage this sort of asymmetry of this risk that seems to be accelerating off into the distance without making it very d- difficult for us to keep up with the change that's coming? Well, perhaps I, I think it, there's a, there's there are two answer there there are two parts to, to answering your question. The first is a more theoretical one, and I think the second one is more technical. And I'll defer to Dimitri to handle the the technical part. I think from a human nature standpoint, evildoers will try to find the easiest way possible to do what they want to do. So they're going to look for an easy opening. And so rather than, you know, bury our heads in the sand and say, you know, we're not going to do anything, what we need to do is to send a signal to the threat actors that we're doing everything we can to protect ourselves. And it's a little bit like if you think about, you know, your house on on a street, right? If you're the only one who doesn't have locks on the door on your street and a thief comes by, drives by at night, The reality is that it's not guaranteed, but the reality is that there's a likelihood that the thief will try your house first because you don't have a lock on the door and everybody else does. Even if there are more valuable things to take in the houses that have locks on compared to yours. So human nature is very much part of this equation. And that's why it's important to to send the signal that you're doing everything you can to defend yourself. But I, I'll defer to Dimitri to answer off from a more technical perspective. If, if we just take that analogy one step further, though, if I may, I mean, because it's a good analogy, but is, is a, a true and a, a more truism that every, the burglars are going to get into all of the houses on the street in actual fact, because, you know, you're going to try and lock them up, but they're going to get in. And so is it more important to think about when they get in, what they can do when they've got into your house? So where are all your valuables? How secure are they? How can you prevent them getting hold of your valuables once they get into your house? I mean, is that a worthwhile thought? It's it's absolutely a worthwhile thought. And, and I can tell you that the discussions that we're having with, with ship owners is to say, look, you need to have a modular, risk-adjusted, and value-driven approach to protection. So going back to the housing analogy, you know, you're going to want to add layers of protection depending upon what you have in the house. So if you have, for example, a tremendous amount of jewelry in the house, you know, chances are you will have a safe in the house to put that jewelry. But the person who doesn't have that much jewelry in the house may not need that extra layer of security, i.e. the safe. Right. So. So you need to, you know, just as you would in on the street or in a row of houses, you need to have, you know, again, a, a modular approach. Now, on, you know, from a shipping perspective, modular basically means you need to be thinking about, okay, what kind of vessel is it? What kind of cargo is it carrying? What's its trading pattern? Because obviously the risks are different in different parts of the world. The risks are different depending upon what type of vessel it is. The risks are different depending, the collateral risks are different depending upon what type of cargo it is. And so that's why you have to have, you know, it's not a one size fits all. Should we hand over to Dimitri? I think you can ask him to answer a different aspect of my question, right? Yes, from the 
technical perspective, we have to understand that this area of cybersecurity of maritime is very immature now. Captains don't know what is cybersecurity. Crew doesn't have any people in charge for cybersecurity. So it's like a very new domain. And of course, hackers target this domain because at the end of the day, the less qualified people they face, the easier it is for them to steal something or to hack the vessel, to take control over the vessel. And I would you know, look at this from the angle of people who can really do the secure system and can, who can really support the secure system. It's not only about the vessel protection or the port protection. It's not only about the antiviruses that are specific for the maritime domain, but also about people. We don't have people in this, in this domain. And if you try and look who is preparing cybersecurity specialists for the maritime domain, I think you would find only maybe two, three universities in the world. And this number is not growing, unfortunately. Thank you, Dimitri. Yes, I mean, you make a very good point, you know, it, and, and that's about awareness, right? I mean, you know, are people who operate ships even aware of the pen potential that the risk of cyber attack might have upon upon the asset that they're controlling? I mean, that's a very good a very good point you make. And, you know, I mean, Andrew, you're speaking to ship owners. I mean, how what, what is the level of perception you find at board level amongst these ship owners in terms of what this risk looks like for their companies? Uh, is there a high level of perception or, you know? So I, I think, you know, the way I, dis- the way I describe the industry at the moment is, and, and certainly what we're seeing in our business, is that we're getting a lot of traction without urgency. So that may sound like an oxymoron, but it's actually not. Because what happens is senior level people, whether they be the CEOs and, and owners of vessel managers or whether they be board members of, of shipping companies or even owners, they will instruct their C-level executives or their middle management, for example, to talk to us and say, look, we need to, be start, we need to start thinking about cyber risk in, in a meaningful way. And just to get those conversations going takes months. And so that's why I'm saying we're, we're, we're getting the traction, but the, you know, the level of urgency within the organizations themselves is frankly not where it should be. Which I think if I'm allowed to expand on that is sort of surprising considering how significant shipping companies are for the sort of global supply chain of goods because we need ships to be securing goods especially raw materials and things safely and securely in order for them to get from a to b and then those are then continue along the chain are used many different ways when they do reach their destination. I think that something really important for vessel operators to do is to look at the bigger picture and how significant their their measures that they put in place are for the wider wider people too as well as their own crew members because some cyber attacks can very much result in safety implications for crew members so they could be harmed we've seen that cyber attacks could even cause collisions we've definitely seen cyber attacks cause ships to be sort of transported to start navigating in a different direction and then be seized or even go into sort of territory where they can be threatened by piracy. So there are big responsibilities that vessel operators should take to secure their ships. But I think you're right. Part of it is raising awareness because how can you protect against something that you don't really understand or don't really know is there? Yeah, I mean, that's a great point you make, Jesse, but it's analogous to global warming, right? So everybody thinks somebody else is going to do something about it. And that little bit that I'm going to do about it isn't going to have a great big difference on global warning anyway. So, you know, the little bit of difference I do to strengthen my 
cybersecurity posture on my ships? Is it going to affect the global supply chain? Well, probably not. How much investment does it need? Well, quite a lot. How much do I know about it? Almost nothing. So you've got this ever spiraling stasis where you've got, you know, a failure to act. And as and, and as Andrew put so eloquently before, you know, you've got this sort of this friction in the system that doesn't allow progress at the speed that you need it. And unfortunately, the rest of the world around you, much like global warning, warming is accelerating away from us at a pace and nobody seems to be noticing, right? And it's it's, it's analogous to that for me with cyber as well. I and mean, the, the gap is yawning now between, you know, that 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 asymmetry we talked about in the, in the early days is now just just exponential in terms of its growth away from from our understanding of how to cope with it. And you know that brings us on to another good point and that is you know this force multiplier that that AI and machine learning is going to have in the hands of the bad actors. I mean, you know, we're on we're talking about deep fake now, we're talking about the ability to to to, to sort of draft emails you know, in a form that is acceptable to any nationality and understandable without error from a phishing perspective. I mean, what's your views on 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 the misuse of AI and and, and in particular chat GPT? Well, indeed. So that's one of the main areas that we focused on in one of our articles is the fact that chat GPT can really give these skills that, well, I mean, Attackers can use ChatGPT even if they don't have these sophisticated cyber skills. They don't even need a sophisticated knowledge of English language in order to create really good professional looking emails. And that's what we mean by force multiplier. It really does give them skills that they might not have, but that doesn't really matter because they still get the same they still achieve the same thing. They still manage to persuade people to open the email. So ChatGPT is worrying in many ways. But a, a large element of that is the fact that it can help create very convincing and professional looking emails when prompted. And it's very beneficial in this respect. There has been nothing really similar to this. And that's so accessible and can be used by everyone. Another element of it is that you can use ChatGPT to source information about vessels. Another sort of information that you might struggle to find on Google, you just ask ChatGPT and they'll provide an answer to you based on the data that they've collected. So it really is an incredibly useful tool for attackers and in particular for people who are not so experienced in conducting cyber attacks because it doesn't take much. It's very much human skills to create an email that can persuade someone to open it and include the link. And one other aspect to that is that ChatGPT will very happily add in a malicious link or an attachment and integrate it really nicely into an email so that it persuades people to click on it. And then, of course, that link could very easily infect your, your computer network, even wider network with malware, which then could lead to wider attacks such as ransomware. But Dimitri, he has incredible knowledge about other sort of areas in which ChatGPT can help attackers. Yes, thank you, Jesse. The big problem of hackers now when they target vessel infrastructure is that vessels have very proprietary protocols and sometimes it takes time to understand how to write certain piece of code, say to stop the engine or to change the navigation. So you have to go through like hundreds and hundreds of manuals and each vessel is unique. So what ChatGPT can do is to generate a piece of source code to attack us, to, to attack, and not to attack the vessel, to stop safe an engine. It cannot do any malicious software because this functionality is blocked but it really saves like months for hackers on studying these new protocols specific to maritime domains because so far what stops us from 
huge number of attacks on the vessels. In the fact that hackers cannot access get access to the vessel, it's very hard to buy the equipment that they want to, say, hack in the lab and then apply in the real life. It's very hard even to come to the vessel. So this lack of knowledge is what's stopping hackers from massive attacks on all the vessels. But when they have ChatGPT, they solve at least half of the problems because now can they can generate the source code easily just with one click. They don't need to have access to all these manuals and to download them. Yeah, wow, that is that is food for thought, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> I mean that brings up sort of the ethical considerations of the evolution of these open source AI tools. You know, I mean, are there any checks and balances from those that have created, you know, Bard and ChatGPT and the like to misuse of their their software for malicious reasons? I mean, is there anything in is there a check and balance in place? Can you can you use ChatGPT to counter these moves by the bad actors? I guess is another question. You know, can it cancel itself out, so to speak? I think ChatGPT is not designed for attackers, so it's not designed for criminals, but it can very easily be manipulated. So if you ask ChatGPT to create a phishing email for you that will maliciously, you know, persuade people to open an email that they shouldn't open. If it's very overtly for a crime, ChatGPT will not do it. But you can very easily just ask ChatGPT to create an email as if you're a colleague to, you know, to ask your colleague to open this, you know, link to some tickets or something similar. So it's very straightforward, especially in sort of the maritime industry, because there are so many legitimate reasons for people to be sending emails or, you know, this way or that. And if they look very convincing and they're very professional in terms of the language used, and they're clearly from someone who, you know, who knows about maritime or is using the right terminology, why, what reason would you have to, to be suspicious of that? So I think there are filters in place to stop attackers from using them, but it's very easy to bypass them. I'm not sure if it's the same in terms of the code, though. That's something that Dimitri could help you with. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, now almost in all countries, AI is not regulated. These regulations are just coming. ChatGPT is also not regulated at all. They try to block all these malicious requests to ChatGPT because the biggest problem that ChatGPT brings to this hacker world is that hackers really can collect a lot of knowledge from open sources without this deep search. Yeah, I mean, and if you look back in the in the fairly recent past in terms of the evolution of ransomware and malware, I mean, it all kicked off with well-meaning academic papers, right, written by academics on, you know, hey, guys, look what could happen if X, Y, and Z happened. And, you know, there were arguments, ethical arguments about that time whether those sorts of papers should be published because they could be read by the bad actors and could give people ideas and about how they can attack computer systems. And, and the school of thought, I believe, at the time was, well, no, this is more because this is essential academic research so that the manufacturers of software, of, of um, computer networks, of computers need to be aware of how to safeguard this infrastructure going forward. And uh, they're more likely to be reading these papers than, than anybody else. But, but you know, if, if the extension of that is, you know, I mean, could AI even evolve through its own understanding of the deep, of its deep research and the amount of, of knowledge it has access to, what future trends could be in, in cyber attack vectors? You know, the changing face of ransomware, the changing face of malware, where that's going to morph into with the use of, of AI and, and machine learning. You know, if you let me, the problem is that from the technical side, 
that all the hacker attacks at the end of the day are attempts to find human mistakes in the code, in the source code, and attacks through these mistakes, through these holes that exist because humans always mis make mistakes. So hackers, when they act on their own, they're not that efficient to find this mistake. They have to spend a lot of time and a lot of money on this. AI can do it very fast and it will not let it go. The problem is that when hackers are equipped enough with AI tools, they will find these vulnerabilities much faster and it will be available not just for professional hackers, but as we call it, student hackers, those who just try their skills and they can become very, very dangerous in this case. Let's look at what ship owners can do to protect themselves against against this burgeoning threat of this, you know, insidious freak towards AI and machine learning evolution of cyber risk on board their vessels. What can they do to to stop this, you know, this 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 risk? Well, I think I, I think at a high level, what they need to start doing is essentially protecting themselves with cybersecurity products. And again you know, doing it depending upon what the trades are, what the vessels are carrying and, you know, and what the vessels, you know, the, the actual vessel size and all of that, all, you know, all of that has an impact on, on how a ship owner should, should go about uh, protecting him or herself. But that's step one. And I think that, you know, we all know, and, you know, obviously you have a deep experience in the industry. We, we know that, that the industry needs to be pushed the industry will not act on its own. So, you know, if you think about the regulatory, regulatory environment, for example, regulators come in and, and make a decision as to what needs to be done. So if you think back, for example, to the, you know, back in the 90s, the big issue was, you know, single hull versus double hull tankers, right? And the single hull phase out took 15 years from a regulatory standpoint. But the reality is that a lot of the major oil companies phased out the usage of, of single hull vessels a lot faster, right? So in this case, it was the client taking the initiative to push the industry a lot faster. So if you look at cyber, you know, today we have unified requirement E26, I believe, which imposes what we would deem to be relatively holistic cybersecurity on vessels. But that requirement is for new buildings contracted from 1st January 2024 onwards, right? And so I think it'll be incumbent upon different stakeholders in the industry from the clients themselves to the financiers to the insurers to really push for vessel owners to do a lot more than what is required by the regulations and, and the speed at which the regulations impose their new rules. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with this. And, and unfortunately, the marine industry has ever been thus right. I mean, to get change in the marine industry, the first thing you need is a big disaster. And the next thing Correct. you need is regu regulation to avoid that disaster, right? But you need the disaster first. You know, so as you alluded to, the double hull issue, I mean, we had the Exxon Valdez, right? That was the catalyst for, for the double the change to the double hull. Then you've yeah. got cultural change needed for safety. So you've got Herald of Free Enterprise, you've got ISM code. And then you've got Twin Towers and you've got ISPS, right? You've got... You know, you've got you've got these huge disasters followed by regulation. Now, you know, you could argue that, you know, Maersk were hit by the uh, cranky, the Ukrainian virus. What was it called? It seems so. Oh, not Petya, right? Petya, Petya, not yeah, Petya, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not Petya many, many years ago. But that wasn't even a wake up for, for stronger regulation. I mean, WannaCry might have done the job, right? But uh, 
But yeah, it seems to me that, and I totally agree with you, Andrew, that, you know, absent strong, stringent, compliant regulation that that binds everybody to the same idea of some form of cultural change to to protect the industry, it's not going to happen on a piecemeal basis because it requires too much investment, right? Absolutely. I would say that that's a challenge of cyber attacks generally, is that they're they're very much something that people consider theoretical until they become a victim themselves. And as you mentioned, that's very common with other types of sort of disasters, having to wait for something terrible to happen before putting safeguards in place. But I think it's especially frustrating when it comes to cyber attacks, because we're talking about this very tiny scale thing, you know, one email here and there, uh, or, you know, one email that looks a bit convincing and, you know, it, it, it just looks quite legitimate. You click on it by accident. Oh, no, you know, how could that possibly lead to a larger disaster or a, a vessel, you know, crashing or breaking or, or or some kind of parts of its systems breaking down? But it really could. The thing is with cyber attacks is that something very small has to happen for something very large to follow. And indeed, Many attacks that are quite large scale and have had really bad mistakes have started with someone clicking on a link in an email or indeed a USB stick going in that they that they didn't realize had malware attached to it. So I think it, it's definitely a problem with maritime, but it's a problem with raising the importance of cybersecurity in general. And the first step really is just implementing very basic mechanisms, technical mechanisms, even even something as small as an email filtering um, technology uh, onto your networks would probably help towards you know solving the issue. So I just wanted to, to, to add that one in. Yeah, thank you for that. And th- that's very useful advice, Jesse. And, you know, maybe we should finish this podcast w- with some useful tip, top, top tips really to, to start on that sort of pathway to to better cyber security i don't know if you have any thoughts on some some simple measures that maybe ship owners who might be listening to this who are not currently taking proactive steps to harden their security posture might like to listen to and think about to say better safeguard their assets and 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 their their employees i think that dimitri can expand on some technical measures but something that i wanted to bring up was that especially when it comes to manipulating people into doing things for you, like many attackers do, something that vessel operators can definitely do is try as hard as they can to limit some of the really sensitive data or information about their vessels, about their operations, and about the the personal people and the crew members who work there, if at all possible, because the information that's out there that's made public can be used to sort of manipulate if needs be. And there's a uh, and that's something that goes for, you know, all sorts of companies. But that's something that could be done, you know, limit the information that's on the website, perhaps. And also bringing in those sort of, even those very sort of low level technical mechanisms, even, you know, such as the email filtering, I think. But, but I'll let Dimitri expand. I think the good start, I totally agree with Jesse. I think a good start would be to have like even a small set of online courses for the captain at least and for the crew just to be aware of what is cybersecurity on the vessel. And then we can go to the next level, installing like first protection measures. And the more you go up, the more you do the cybersecurity process, not the state, the more secure you are. But it has to be everyday exercise. Fascinating. I could keep talking because I I do find this subject very interesting, but uh, I think we've probably come to the end of our time today. But, uh, you know, you guys are doing a great job, it seems against a very worthy adversary. And I guess, I think the industry will come round to the idea that the house has to be put in order at some point. 
it feels as though we're still quite a long way away from there. But I think as we evolve, as we continue to evolve, there's going to be a need probably for more stringent regulatory requirements placed upon the industry to better protect itself. And in the meantime, all we can try to do, I guess, is to continue to educate and make people aware of what these these risks are to their organizations and their ships. So thank you for contributing to that. It's, it's most appreciated. Thank you very much for having us. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Maritime Risk Podcast brought to you by Shoreline Limited. We hope this episode has shed some light on the diverse and complex risks facing the maritime industry today. We would like to thank our sponsor, Maritime Insurance Solutions Limited, for their invaluable support in making this podcast possible. To access more episodes of our podcast series, visit our website at www.shoreline.bm. Remember, in the ever-changing world of maritime risk, preparation is key. Until next time, fair winds and following seas.